thanks for tuning in to Power Athlete Radio. Fixing a broken athlete is tough, but it's even more tough when they're able to mask their ship mechanics with compensatory talent. Ingrid Markham will be the first to tell you that she rose to the highest levels of gymnastics, bobsledding, and Olympic weightlifting doing just that. Hear how she trained through injury after injury with success over the years, but at great cost. Now she's dedicated to educating coaches and athletes so that they can thrive and continue to crush their competitors for the long haul. In this episode, Ingrid takes us through a few diagnostics that will help improve coordination and drive intentionality into your training. As she explains, intention and purpose can be indicators that an athlete is properly motivated. When asked to speak on the topic of motivation, Ingrid shares an interesting perspective about reaching a certain level in competition. According to her, there comes a time where although motivation has not wavered, the anxiety and stress of competing has significantly decreased. She attributes this to years of stress inoculation and finally accepting that the only thing you can master is that which you can control. Finally, Tex and Ingrid jam on the common fascination with coordination. Hear how the two discuss what they feel is an often overlooked and undefined component of athleticism. This is episode 193. Power Athlete Nation, what is up? You're talking to Luke in Hill Country, Texas. At least that's what Leah Kay told me. And Tex over in H-Town, Texas. Do I sound like a Texan, y'all? A little bit. I mean, you're, you're fixing to once you spend a few more weeks in there. But Houston, actually, in Texas, we call it Clutch City. Clutch City? You know this. Fun fact. No, I don't. Okay. What, what, where am I? Am I in, like, uh, am I in some, some other type of city? Hill Country, dude. You got it. Nailed it. Uh, Hill Country and Clutch City, people. And you are listening to the premier podcast in strength and conditioning, Power Athlete Radio. Uh, John Jay Welly, a.k.a., um, is not on the show today. He, we're, we're, we're on week three of Get Internet to John's Ranch. Uh, and it, the unreal. We had um, – so, Tex, I don't know if I told you. We had Time Warner come out, a.k.a. Spectrum now, and they did this whole site survey, and they, like, took, took drawings, threw spikes down, told us where they're going to erect poles and trench lines and this, that, and the other thing. And this dude's like, oh, yeah, we'll get it here. And, uh, dude, they went dark on us for like three or four days, no call back, called in and finally like, oh, yeah, we threw away the bid because no customer in their right mind would be willing to pay what it would cost to get fucking internet to your house, which is so crazy. There's something up here, dude. It's the internet. It's everywhere. How can it not be at John's house, you know? But uh, let's see. What else? What other public service announcements do we have? So. I'm in the midst of, like, I, I'm talking with 16 people right now this week, Tex. We're going to book 16 certs in the next five or six days. And today is the end of January. By the time you hear this, people, the CrossFit SSA, that sport-specific application seminar, is going to have probably 15 to 16 events booked for the first half of the year, maybe first three quarters, something like that. So get your pen and pen, pen and paper down and, and write down when you're going to show up because Tex and I are coming to town. Right, Tex? Oh, yeah. Can't wait to get back on the road after <laughs> my recent travel experiences. I got stranded in Lexington, South Carolina for just over 24 hours because of the, the winter storms happening in the middle of the country. And I was flying from South Carolina to Texas, which didn't know which more affected by the storms going over like St. Louis and stuff. I don't know. Yeah. I'd, listen, they, I, as listeners or at least veteran listeners may know, you 
experience the shittiest travel. Like you are there, you are the yin to like to my yang in the sense that I don't get, you know, knock on plastic desk. Um, I haven't had too many, like nothing like you, you know what I mean? You are, you have get the dealt the shit end of the travel bargain, you know? But, um, what am I talking about here? Okay. So yeah, powerathletehq.com slash events. That's where you're going to see all that stuff. And speaking of the CrossFit SMEs, that's subject matter expert, uh, Tex and I qualify as that. So does John. We have a fellow CrossFit SME slash, and that is like a sliver. I would say a sliver of like the, the CV or your resume on. Uh, we have Ingrid Markamon. Ingrid, what is up? Thanks for joining me in text to talk. We'll see wherever this goes, right? Yeah, no, I'm excited. Thanks for having me. Well, guys, if you don't know who Ingrid is, uh, I'm over here looking at her page. She's at ingridmarkham.com slash about. And like, you know, I peaked in high school. What that means to text, <laughs> as, uh, as we talked about before, as, as a 2001 state champion football player, no big deal. I showed up. Uh, I just sent the yearbook picture to text <laughs> today. <laughs> But, you know, in like, hey, you know, at least I'm doing something when I'm 17, 18 years old. But while I was there thinking I was making a difference, Ingrid was literally on like a track to fucking excellence. I mean, you've got an awesome, an awesome set of uh, accomplishments here, Ingrid. I mean, uh, bobsled, gymnast, you are in a battling rope DVD series, which truth be told is my, like my goal in life is to be in a fitness DVD series. But, you know, well, tell us a little bit about the journeys. So where did it start? What are you doing? Or what led you to where you're at now? Uh, well, you know, it's funny. I, I started when I was 18 months old. Um, my, <laughs> you know, I, I got a late start. Yeah, life. right, right. Uh, <laughs> I, uh, my, all of my siblings and I all did uh, the gym and swim class at the local YMCA. And I took to gymnastics very, very quickly. I was very strong as a kid. You know, the first thing that... Uh, you ask a kid, you know, how big are you? And they put their arms up and so big. And the very next question when I was like 18 months old was how strong are you? And I'd go, grr. So, <laughs> so that's sort of just the, the start that of, you know, a, a long career. But, um, but so I, I continued in gymnastics. I did just a little bit of, of track and field when I was in high school, uh, or sorry, not in high school, in junior high. And then when, by the time I was in high school, I was training 35 hours a week for gymnastics. So I went to school full time and then I did private club gymnastics and then went on to do division one college gymnastics at William & Mary and uh, proceeded to be um, broken like most gymnasts are by the time I graduated. But uh, despite that, was really interested in doing more. Uh, and that was at the same time that I decided I wanted to have a career in strength and conditioning. So I became a personal trainer and a strength coach and went back and became a strength coach at William & Mary. And while I was there, I took the club coach course to be just to be able to coach Olympic weightlifting with my athletes. And the coach of the course is, of course, a weightlifting coach because it was the USAW course. And right. he suggested I start weightlifting. Uh, and so, I mean, I, I jumped right on. I mean, I, I kind of dabbled in stuff. You know, when you finish college at 21 as a gymnast, you are absolutely ancient. And you can't really do, I mean, you can go to like adult gymnastics classes and have some fun, but you can't really go compete in recreational. Right, right. You got to turn a new page, right? <laughs> yeah, right. So, but, but so you kind of assume that you're old to do anything. Um, and when I found a sport that I was kind of, I mean, I was, I mean, now, you, you know, with CrossFit coming in, you know, there are a lot of people starting weightlifting in their twenties and thirties, but, um, but at that time, a lot of people were starting in their teens and early twenties. Um, so I was a little bit on the old side, but. Uh, but I, you know, I, I got started in weightlifting. I jumped right in and uh, qualified for nationals by my second meet. 
And uh, so I did, I did nationals for, gosh, from 2001, I think was my first, well, 2000, I made American Open and then um, qualified for two Olympic trials. So I did Olympic trials in 2004, 2008. Um, I got to one nationals in 2009, but of course, some of the 2008 Olympians had retired. <laughs> so the girl I had taken second to for a few years retired, so then I get to win. Um, there you go. But, uh, but you know, I still, I still got that, that opportunity, which was pretty cool. Uh, so a bunch of world trials and, and that kind of thing. Um, and I was actually at the NSCA conference in 2002 as a strength coach. And at that time, there aren't a lot of, uh, there weren't a lot of places for you to do any weightlifting. And so there were a group of strength coaches there that were weightlifters. And so we just trained in the Alico booth at the expo, you know, at the national conference. And two of the bobsled coaches happened to be at the conference the conference and saw me lifting and came over and said, Hey, how'd you like to start bobsledding? Um, and so of course, open to opportunity. Uh, I was like, yeah, absolutely. What do I do? And, uh, so that's kind of started me on a whole nother journey. So that was the summer of 02 and I didn't go out until 2003. Um, but I went out and, and won the combine, won my, my first push championships, uh, and went on to, you know, race for the U S over the course of 10 years, uh, off and on. So I would, if it was a winter Olympic quad, I'd focus on bobsled. If it was a summer Olympic quad, I'd focus on weightlifting. Um, so I, st I stayed as a brakeman, but got to travel the world and do all kinds of stuff and, uh, and have a lot of fun. Um, and took a little bit of a break in 2010 to, <laughs> to, to uh, try out some Highland Games. And so oh, I had nice. a lot of fun throwing. Yeah, so I threw for a couple of years. I actually would like to get back to throwing again this summer. But uh, um, so I, I did, you know, I mean, I, I hate to call it an, an a, an amateur world championship, but that's what they called it. I got to go out for that. So that was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's, it's kind of like a high school state championship, right? Yeah, right, it is. I was like, <laughs> but that's what they named it. Um, but, but it was a whole lot of fun and, and throwing is just, you know, it's, it's so much fun to be around people who enjoy doing what I, what I, you know, I, I like to lift, throw and push heavy things essentially. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah the, the, like the, the embodiment of a power athlete, you know what I mean? Yeah, like that's, right. that's why I think what you're talking about resonates so much with us. And, uh, you know, I hate, I hate that there a gender barrier and gap or even groups exist like, and people judge, but dude, it, like, women tend to be, as you probably know, a lot of the girls that we work with, you know, in the public gym environment are, they're so scared to just get into that power type of sport, even though it's a, it's so fulfilling. Uh, the training is so, you know, so beneficial and it's it's awesome to have a female ambassador you know that's that's shown that paving the way like hey make it happen thank you well i know and i mean i'm i'm built for it first of all i mean that that's what i gravitate to i mean for me for me to run once around the track is long distance so like forget it yeah <laughs> yeah I, I am sprint all the way um but but i i think it's changing some i think you know with more exposure to weightlifting you know, there are more and more women who are interested in it and, and maybe they haven't made the jump, but they're, but it's becoming more accepted, um, which is, which is a terrible way for, for it to gain exposure and for right. people to get into it. Cause why should it be accepted in order for you to, to enjoy doing it? Um, it's just the reality though, right? It is. Well, and, and I think, um, it's, for, I think it's less about the actual acceptance but more about going, okay, well, maybe if she likes it, then maybe I'll like it too. Not it's okay to like it, but if they see mm -hmm. more people interested in it, then, then they go, oh, well, maybe that is something I would enjoy. Um, and I think that's more of, of what we're finding as people get started in it is, is you know, they're seeing the exposure um, because people who are interested in it are going to be interested in it, whether other people 
care or not, right? Whether mm-hmm. whether other people support their journey, I think they're gonna they're gonna gravitate for yeah, it. But, yeah. Um, but it's it's just getting the exposure to it and getting a sample of it and understanding what it's like. And not only the exposure, but also now quality coaching. Yeah. The more right. That people start to pick it up, then it creates more opportunities because coaches can give them direction versus just walking into a random white room and trying what they saw on YouTube. Now it's specific goals, specific markers, and now they can apply what a coach teaches them. Well, and and especially for women, I think, because women are are much more technical in their lifting than guys are. Guys are willing to just like, let's just try it. (laughs) You know, in general, I think you've got more guys that would just kind of see it and go, oh, I'm going to try that. Whereas girls are like, okay, well, I want to try that, but how do I do it? And so, so I think you're right. Like having that, the access to that coaching is going to be really big. Yeah. And I guess as a coach, you, um, I always enjoy working with female athletes and clients better because they they have a desire to learn how to do it versus some dipshit guy like myself, you know, who's just like, yeah, I'll just grip and rip it. That looks easy. You know? Um, so I guess what did, do you have brothers and sisters or were your parents a big players in supporters in, in the, the athletic endeavor? Because I mean, it's like, that's, that's a, a family commitment. And you know, we, one of our buddies, Zach Evanesh, that's one, one of the talks he has with potential clients is, he brings the whole family in because he wants to work with serious families because especially at a young age like that, I mean, the kid's kind of the vessel, you know what I mean? The parents shouldn't be necessarily the driving force, but they should be a supporting force. You know what I mean? So what was, what was the dynamic like that as you, as you were growing up? We had, I had huge, huge support from my family. Um, but I mean, there were five of us and there were five of us within eight years of each other. So that was a, a pretty close gap. And I think there was one year that between the five of us, we were on 13 different teams at the same time. Uh, You know, my sister was soccer and cross country and swimming and my brothers were soccer and baseball. And I mean, my brother did track and cross country. I mean, we were just in everything under the sun. I have no idea how my parents got us to everything that we did because both of them worked full time. I mean, crazy how they managed it. Cause now as an adult, I'm like, how the heck did you even like have any time to yourself? Um, but you know, and, and we spent time at each other's events and it was like, okay, I'll pick you up from soccer and then we're going to go to this. And, um, you know, nobody, nobody had one sport that had as big of a commitment as I did with gymnastics. Um, but I mean, we were all doing stuff probably that same amount of time. Uh, and you know, my parents, they were always supportive and always kind of never pushed us into anything, but it encouraged us to do things. And then, but it was always my choice. So if I had a a really frustrating day at practice and I would come home just in tears, you know, it it would be, well, you don't have to go back. Not like, Hey, stay home. Don't do it anymore. But you know, it's it's your choice. If you want to go back, we'll support you. Great. But you know, if you're ready to be done, that's fine too. Um, so everything that we did was always our own choices. And, And so I think that's been really big for me going into everything that I've done is that it's, I've never felt obligated to do anything. Uh, and it's always been this, this drive that came from myself, but then I had this amazing support system in the back that kind of, you know, helped me do all that. Yeah, that's, I mean, that, that those are the variables you need to, for success, right? Mm-hmm. So, uh, well, I mean, in your journeys, I guess you've been exposed to all sorts of different kinds of coaching, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, yes. primarily, primarily in the power variation, uh, I guess, but I mean, what, so what is, so we know the athletic endeavor and really, really the athletics and the competition is an expression of training, right? Uh, and that's where we'll call them normies or general pop or people who didn't really have the competitive upbringing, 
they look at a weight room or a gym or a bar, you know, and it's like they see images of vanity where as folks like us who played sports growing up, you're like, this was, this was a catalyst to performance, you know, and that's, mm-hmm. that's what we're trying to bring back into the fold, making performance sexy. But, um, so talk to, talk about the, the training journey, you know, on the back end. what, you know, um, were, did you, was it very Olympic weightlifting focused? Is that why you gravitated towards it? Or, I mean, uh, growing up, what did that look like? Uh, well, we never, I never actually did any Olympic lifting, which I wish I had been exposed to it because I would have jumped on that much earlier, but um, I wasn't exposed to weightlifting until I started becoming a strength coach. So, I mean, I, I think the first time I tried anything was in 98, 99, something like that. Um, but growing up, we did, my very, very first gymnastics coach did an enormous amount of strength work with us in, when we did body weight initially. So when I was, he, he would literally have us do for our, in our warm up for our practice, we would do as many sit-ups and push-ups as you could do. And to the point where when I was eight, I did 242 push-ups without stopping. Um, so that's the kind of strength level that we had and, and we would do, you know, press, press, press. So straddle to press handstand, straddle to press handstand over and over and over again. Right. Um, and we would have, we would have contests. I mean, he would hold our feet and we would hop on our hands in a handstand down the stairs. Um, you know, we just did an enormous amount of strength work and that's, I mean, really, and, and I was built for strength anyway, and I was strong to begin with, but then to have that foundation for that many years of the earliest part of my career just mm-hmm. set me up for, for so much more going forward. Um, and I wish I could have appreciated it more at that yeah, time. Yeah. Um, you know, and then I think in college, we had a very typical college gymnastics program at that time. There wasn't a lot of, I mean, I had done some weight training because that first coach that I had also had us do weightlifting. So we did just like overhead presses and, you know, just really basic stuff in the weight room. Um, I think I squatted for the first time in college. That so was like brand new for me. Um, but so even though I look like I'm, I'm built to squat and I've been squatting my entire life, I, uh, I wasn't introduced to it until I was later. Doppler. Yeah. You, it wasn't you, had motor, you had the motor patterning from, you know, from a lot of the stuff you did in gymnastics. Right. So it's right. like, Oh, I just got to squat down bilateral hip hinge and stand up. I can, right. I can handle that. I've done a little more, a lot more complex shit in, in my day. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. Well, we, as, and especially as a gymnast, you can kind of figure anything out for the most part, yeah, uh, yeah. which is a good and a bad thing. Cause you don't always do it right, but, <laughs> but you make it, you make it work. Um, but, uh, but yeah, no, it's, it's, I've always gravitated toward the strength, strength movements in general. I mean, I loved being strong as an athlete. I mean, I think that was the description of me in my college bio in our you know, media guide. That was the very first thing they said was strong athlete. Um, so it's, it's, that's just been like, I mean, it may as well be my middle name. That's what, that's just what I love more than anything. Um, so I, it's, it's obviously then no surprise that I would then jump into something like weightlifting after that. Nice. Uh, yeah, so text. So- Tex, you, you, I mean, you crossed paths with Ingrid at the NSCA. So what, you know, we had talked offline a little bit about what popped out during the presentation. Do you want to jump into some of that stuff now? Absolutely. So Ben Crookston, who is the most connected man in fitness, I, I believe, after experiencing several conferences with the man, Train Heroic. Um, Ingrid and I were both in the same presentation and we pop out. I'm just chatting with Ben and he's like, hey, you got to meet this person. And so Ingrid and I, um, we're fortunate to meet and then she talked about I guess the presentation that she was giving on the last day of the conference I think it was like the last presentation um, in kind of training the broken athlete 
So those of you that are familiar with our program and approach, uh, we, we build all movement from the ground up and kind of our standard is posture and position and proficiency of movement, not necessarily the number. So uh, we were able to, I guess, connect on a lot of points, but then hearing and listening and sitting in and, and doing some of the movements from her presentation, a bunch of light bulbs went off for connections. So I really want to kind of get into that, introduce some of those connections in there, and kind of, I'd like to start with purpose. So uh, we talked about your training experience, your successes, but there was also some injuries and trials and tribulations along the way which I believe kind of led you to present on training the broken athlete. So kind of take us through the trials, the tribulations, the injuries, and that will lead us right into, I guess, the presentation. Yeah, you got it. Um, so, you know, as you know, I was a, a gymnast for, you know, the first 20 years of my career and the last nine competitive years of my gymnastics career, I spent uh, every single year on crutches. So I had nine years in a row where I was on crutches every single year. Um, and I broke a heel, I tore a PCL, I, you know, had ankle reconstruction. I mean, I, I had all kinds of, of issues. Um, but again, like you, you just kind of get through your rehab and then you come back and start training again. Um, and you know, then I get into both weightlifting and bobsled, which I did simultaneously. And Part of the issue was that I, as a strength coach, decided, well, I know what I'm doing. I'll write my own programming. Um, but what I didn't realize uh, until much later, because hindsight, of course, is always 2020. Um, you know, I did a summer sport and a winter sport. So I would start my bobsled season. We would start our, our combine and our um, push championships and that kind of thing in like July and August. And then you'd have to carry this peak or peak higher through, you know, the, the World Cup season and World Championships, which would end end of February, early March. And then I would go right into a training for nationals for weightlifting and then world trials or Olympic trials. So while most of my bobsled teammates were taking March and April off to go sit at a beach and let their bodies recover, I was continuing this high intensity performance and jumping right into this other piece and then you know olympic trials world trials would end and i'd get right back to training for bobsled so over the course of about 10 years i completely lost any foundation that i had and just got so broken that that i could do almost no training i was a weightlifter that couldn't squat at the end of my career um which is absolutely ridiculous but um but yeah so i i spent years with chronic hip and back and shoulder and ankle and calf tears and i mean so many things under the sun. Uh, and so when I finally decided to retire, and I'd been on a process of learning and recovering kind of towards the end of my career anyway, uh, but then I really honed in on it after retiring, which is now just a little over three and a half years ago. Um, but, uh, but yeah, it's, it's my journey through that is what I want to prevent other people having to deal with. And I think that that's possible. And I think had I learned a lot of what I know now, uh, I would have been helped much earlier in my career and, and not had as many of the issues that I had. That's definitely the reason I guess a lot of us are getting into the business <laughs> is to really don't let, don't let young athletes go through the trials and tribulations that we did. Um, so I guess let's, let's kind of get into uh, presentation. So one of the things that really struck a chord with me is uh, was your slide on building or rebuilding the physical foundation. And so you have uh, structural integrity and movement variability, which you break off into six constructs. So uh, 
kind of, I guess, introduce us to where that block lies, right? In the, the pyramid of developing an athlete, if we take that, that Sith, Sith picture, uh, and how, why that is so important for coaches to understand before they even build a strength training program. Well, so I, I've, you know, the, the six, and just to kind of briefly um, give you a history of it is, I, you know, I kind of broke the body down into the, the individual functions that you need for a body to work the way the body is supposed to work. So even below your GPP, um, which is just a phase of training, you know, GPP is just a, you know, section of time that you do at the beginning of your season or whatever, and then you kind of let go of it until it's time to revisit it. Um, whereas the foundation of human movement and, and that, that platform and those six kind of key elements are always there. And those are always things that we need to make sure that we're, we're hitting. And so for me, it sort of encircles your pyramid. It's not just the base of the pyramid. Um, because we want to be doing these things even when you're at your very specific you know, peaking portion of your season. Um, and especially because a lot of these things address the, you know, what happens in training is things start to shut down or, I mean, training is, is hard on the body. Training is not a good thing for us and especially high intensity competition. And so this, these sorts of pieces help keep the body functioning the way it should function and be able to withstand all of those, those kind of that progression of training. And so the, the, the first component here is posture and awareness. And, and one of our side conversations was uh, just kind of the importance of a kin kinetic awareness for an athlete. Um, and I, I guess take us through the process to include posture and awareness versus before, um, you know, strength and, and all the other components that you have here. Well, I think the, the thing to, to make sure I, I stress about posture, a lot of people think posture and that's just like, okay, that's how I stand. But posture is how you carry yourself in any movement you're doing. And it's not this like upright standing position, but for me, it's, it's the alignment of all your joints and how you're carrying yourself through your movement. Uh, you know, we want to certainly make athletes as efficient as possible, but also give them enough awareness that they can be slightly off and still have a, a strong position. Um, but it's understanding what efficient posture and efficient alignment feel like and, and then doing a lot of patterning work. You know, I, I, I'll do a lot of, of really low weight, high rep work in very basic movements so that the body understands, okay, this is how I'm supposed to work. This is how I'm supposed to do this. And so then when you load it, your body doesn't then break down into this other pattern that you're, that you're used to. You know, you can rely on this foundation of movement that you're building and that, even as you get stressed, even as you get tired, even as there's resistance goes up, we don't lose that. Um, and they understand how to interact with the ground and, you know, interact with their body and, and connect from one piece to the other um, so that it's not just a whole bunch of independent pieces doing different things. When we, at our seminar, we, we start with posture and kind of build that from the ground up and we use uh, a whole rack of kind of coaching feedback opportunities to really introduce that position. And one of the most effective ones we have is simply the ground. So we start athletes just down on the ground and really kind of bring their proprioceptive awareness to what it feels like when their, their posture is set and uh, like taking their lower back and pressing it against the floor at, at your presentation, you had us like pretend we're blowing out birthday candles. Like, uh, which, you know, one of the, another feedback opportunity, right? 
So um, kind of parallel, kind of you're starting from the ground, we were starting from the ground, and then taking it up to challenge that posture with different planes of motion, with, uh, with external resistance, finding different things, but without an athlete's ability to really understand um, where we need to challenge, then there's this whole grand disconnect. Uh, and just looking around the room during the presentation, like freaking heads were exploding, uh, this simple per, like perspective that I guess they have never had before. It was always percentages and crazy stuff like that, but mm-hmm. just finding parallels. Um, and talk, speaking about patterning, Luke and I had a conversation yesterday uh, just about how important this concept is because Luke was losing in a fight. What was that? No, Tex, listen, that's not what was happening exactly, okay? Uh, a buddy of mine who's fights out in Thailand, guy's like a little brother to me, and uh, you know he was uh, my best friend's younger brother, and he's he's mixed martial arts guy, and he decided he wanted to teach me some Drew Jitsu, which is his own brand of like the primal movements for, for jujitsu. If you want to like train and get in shape in any ways. But, uh, so, so he had, he had me do these three arm locks and basically three, uh, different like throws and, uh, did, and I'm like, bro, I need to get like, give me like 10 to 15 reps of just a single thing before we go full speed, because I, I'm not picking up the pattern. Like I know I'm not, I'm lost. I know what it feels like to be, lost and he's like no we don't have time and uh, you know i was telling texas story and i'm like i don't know if it's just you know young kid young coach still has to kind of figure it out the old wax on wax off daniel son type deal uh to to ingrain this type of thing so when the, the heat gets turned up a bit and you got your buddy drew on top of you slapping you in the face uh you remember how to how to execute this stuff and and can recall that motor pattern uh, I didn't know if he just didn't know it or if he just wanted to beat my ass a little bit, which I think was probably the latter. But uh, um, yeah, it's it's something. It's it's hard on both levels, right? I mean, because I think you're you're in you're in both environments where most of our listeners are, because you have your BGB fitness, right, which I think is like the general population. Yep. And then you've also existed in the team training weight room where you you have a little more of a say with the athletes, but you're, you're compromising potentially with the coach. So uh, do you have a technique or a strategy to get buy-in, especially kind of on the general pop side of things where, you know, so a new member might jump into a group training session where there's four or five other people who are, are literally years ahead of them in terms of a skill curve. Right. And they're seeing like the big numbers and maybe some complex movements and like, Oh, I want to fucking get in on that. And you're like, whoa, throttle down, big fella. You know, we got to get that pattern in. You know, I mean, do you have a way to break through with these athletes for some of the coaches listening? Like any techniques, tricks? Well, I, I personally, you know, there are, there are certain things that you can go all out without a lot of instruction and give them a chance to, to have that opportunity in their training session and then take the high skill and the higher coordination movements and do some patterning the same day. So I'll, if, I, if I have somebody that's, that's newer, I'll spend just a little bit of time in their warm-up where we're doing patterning work, whether it's a hip hinge or whether it's a squat or whether it's whatever, we'll do patterning work in their warm-up and it's just their warm-up. So like, you know, we're, they, it, it's not, that's not their workout, don't worry about it. And then we'll go over and do power work on the ropes because ropes are super easy to get a ton of power work, some strength endurance work, strength work. I mean, there's so many things that you can right. do so I just, I just choose a simpler pattern for them to get working. Cause I'm not going to, 
especially in an athletic environment, I'm not going to spend weeks on this basic patterning work and not do any other real work. Right. right, right. Uh, not that this isn't real work because it is, but, but I need to build strength at the same time. So I need to find the movements that I can put them into that they can still get that effect out of it. But while I'm still patterning over here and so that over time, the two of them blend together and then we have this more complete athlete. Um, cause I mean, athletes are going to want to train and they're not going to spend this time like, Oh, I'm going to do this like rehab stuff over here for 12 weeks. Like that's not going to happen. Yeah. Uh, and, and so, so I do, I'm very sensitive to that. And I mean, I knew as for me, like I wanted to go train. Um, and unless I was really, really, really hurt, um, you know, I, I wasn't going to spend a ton of time doing this rehab stuff. Um, right. and, and it was the same thing. I mean, I, I was a strength coach with us field hockey. I was a strength coach at the collegiate level. So, you know, as a division one strength coach, so I mean, I've, I've worked in full team environments and, you know, the athletes are coming in number one, they kind of half don't want to train anyway. But then if they are going to want to train, it's definitely not going to be this like non-sexy, you know, I can't work very hard on this type of stuff. Right. But if you can sneak it into their warm up in a way, and, and what I've tried to do, what I've tried to specialize in is finding a way to break down the movements in a way that it doesn't take a lot of thought necessarily. I can just put you in a position and then you just push or you just hold or you whatever. Um, and then if you think that it's just warm up, then you don't care if it's that hard. Uh, and then we do hard stuff in your workout. Um, yeah, that's, so that's, that's a, to do it. That's a connection we try to make for folks at, you know, either our clinics or seminars is like, listen, we're calling this a warm up, but here's what you have to understand. Like, this is probably some of the most important components of the training along the whole cycle, the life cycle of this athlete, because this is where we're developing the skills and drills, uh, to not only be more effective with the lifts to drive an accelerated adaptation, but also keep their movement crisp, teach them how to reduce produce force so they don't fucking hurt themselves when they're, you know, running around on a, a, a field or, or on the court. So it's, it, I mean, you just sneak it in there, right? You trick them. Hey, these are the warm ups. Got to warm up, uh, you know, and then fucking no, it's not, you know, that's, it's important. And then go let them play under a barbell, do whatever they got to do. Right. Yep. Yep. Exactly. Cause I mean, the thing is they may not be perfect under a bar yet. Their patterns may not be excellent, but they still need training more than anything else. Uh, you know, if, if they're, especially if they're going to be going right into a season, then we need that. We need to get that, that, those pieces as well. I mean, strength is one of my foundations and you can't build strength unless you're getting, you know, this extra resistance and doing all this stuff. But, but there's lots of options for those things that are certainly going to be safe and they can work hard and feel like they're doing something. Yeah. Ropes, assault bike, sleds, like just, you know, the one way, the one way path to hell type shit, you know, and like get them on intervals and blast them and they'll be like, Oh, let's do more warm ups. <laughs> but it still comes down to how they do it. Um, yes. and really kind of sprinkling in and integrating all of the, the posture position, mobility, stability, all the stuff that we're going to challenge with strength training into a air quote warm up right? That, that's pretty, pretty high level coaching. So did your strength coaches uh, make you aware of this or this is something that you stumbled upon as an opportunity to really get your message across to your athletes? This is kind of something that I've stumbled across myself. Um, you know, I mean, I was my own coach for the last 10 years of my career. So I didn't, I didn't have a coach until, you know, before I, I was, very well versed in this stuff. Um, and so, and early on in my career, I didn't have anybody that was doing any of this, but you know, it was for me, the evolution was 
understanding biomechanically what I needed to do as an athlete was very crucial to my athletic performance. So, you know, I mean, I watched thousands upon thousands upon thousands of hours of frame by frame video in gymnastics and weightlifting and bobsledding to fix the tiniest little piece to have a big result and have a big change and have, and then see how that affected my performance. So I already understood a lot about biomechanical changes and alignment for performance enhancement. And then I started applying that to also getting myself out of pain, which I mean, not ironically, but it's, it's the foundation of human movement. The alignment pieces are the same to kind of get somebody out of pain as they are to increase their performance, right? So it's all the same stuff. And so, so it was kind of that evolution of it. And especially when I was in this chronic pain, you know, I'd go to a therapist and they'd give me this movement and say, okay, this is your, your glutes aren't firing or this isn't firing. This movement should, should do that. So just do that, you know, two sets of 20 and you'll be great, you know, but I couldn't do one rep without, or, or I couldn't do one rep feeling what I should be feeling. And so kinesthetically, I knew what was working and what was not working and that wasn't working. So then biomechanically, I said, okay, I know this needs to work because now I understand that that's off or not off, obviously, but downregulated, whatever you want to call it, not functioning as well as it should. Um, so then how can I put myself in a position to make that happen? And, and to reconnect my body to that area and, and try to get it to work. So that's been the evolution of it. It's just been this understanding and then how to apply it into my program because I found that if I did that first and then tried to do something afterwards, what I did afterwards was enhanced by what I had done in the beginning. So then I thought, well, geez, if I just do it in my warm up, then I kind of have that ready to go and I'm not over fatiguing and I'm not just starting to compensate and I'm just kind of ready to go for my day. So that's, I guess kind of where, where, how it's kind of, you know, created that, that pattern for me. So let's, uh, let's stick with that supposed, this is supposed to be <laughs> So one of my favorite lines from the presentation, I wrote it in my, my notebook, uh, it was don't just do something because it's supposed to be beneficial. And this was one of your like, final six points of advice to all the coaches. And uh, just going back to some of our previous podcasts, two, two high-level coaches, uh, Jay Dawes and then uh, Kio Basso, they said, baseline for a coach is understanding. So if these physicians are telling you to do this and say you didn't have, I guess, uh, the high kinesthetic awareness and you were an athlete and you just did that, it was your expectation that it was going to work. Mm-hmm. But your kinesthetic awareness provided you the opportunity to realize shit, this, this doesn't work. So there's a lot of coaches out there who are just taking, you know, maybe a, maybe a, a, a mobility exercise or a, you know, a glute firing exercise and giving it to their athletes. They don't understand it, but this doctor said that, and it, it just kind of creates a potential uh, injury risk for athletes and just down-regulating performance everywhere. Um, so talk to us kind of, I, I guess, uh, from our, our discussion, you said you went to 30, 40 therapists and really, were they all saying different things? Were they all saying the same thing? Like at what point did you realize, um, just this needs to be a a defining principle. I'm not going to do this just because it's supposed to, I'm going to find out how that works. Mm -hmm. Well, thankfully I had exposure to therapists who also believed that. Um, but when I tried to tell them, that this is what I was feeling versus what I was supposed to be feeling, they 
didn't necessarily know how to make that change. Um, and so it was like, okay, well, that one doesn't work. Okay, let's try this one. Okay, that one doesn't work. Let's try this one. So, I mean, I, I went to, to, to knowledgeable people. And, and part of it was, mind you, I compounded my problem for so many years. I started moving the way I was moving when I was a gymnast. So, I mean, I, I had these patterns ingrained in my system for well over 20 years by the time I was going to some of these people. And so it was, it was unpeeling the layers of an onion to kind of figure out like, okay, why is this happening? I mean, I had a therapist actually tell me, um, because he, he had put me in a, a position to try to do a movement that I could not do. And like my body physically couldn't do it. And he, he actually said to me, I don't know how you are physically capable of walking across the room based on this test, much less pushing a bobsled down in hell. And mind you, I was on the World Cup at the time in an Olympic year. So like, I mean, it, it was, that's how dysfunctional my body was. And so it was, it was me just having to, to go through all the pieces of going, okay, well, this helped a little, this helped. So, I mean, I, I had to work through that. But I mean, I find that athletes in general, and especially the the more talented, and I, I like to use talented in quotes because talented is, is a very um, descriptive term that I think can mean a lot of things, but um, the more talented the athlete, generally, the more regressed I have to make their movements uh, because they're so good at compensating and so good at finding other ways to make it happen that they will make it look exactly right. So as a therapist, if you're watching them do the movement, you're like, oh yeah, that looks great. And I heard that a lot because as a gymnast, I can make it look right. I might be using my quad to do hip extension, but I can make it look right. Um, and so it wasn't until I could find a, a piece it together, understanding like, okay, this is firing. This is not firing. Um, but, but it's, and I see it in gymnasts. I see it in athletes. And, um, so I think it's just a big puzzle. It's, it's just, kind of working through those those pieces but it's also talking to your athlete and saying not not saying do you feel this but tell me what you're feeling and tell me where you're feeling it and how you're feeling it what part of the movement you're feeling like like you got to get involved um and especially if an athlete is a little bit more broken you got to be really really cognizant of those things um uh, yeah look i know you're going to get into curse of the gifted but just to jump in before you do that uh an effective coaching tool that I've just defaulted to in, in my journey is an athlete turns and looks at me after they do a squat, a, a snatch, whatever it is, and asks, how'd that look? My immediate question to them is, how'd it feel? Or what'd you feel? Just to bring them back into the movement and have them consciously think about the process to kind of make that connection. So um, again, finding best practices through different journeys, cool. But all right, hit it, Luke. Well, I was just going to say, Ingrid, that, you know, for the veteran listeners, they probably heard John talk about this quite a bit. John played 10 years in the NFL. And so we hear a lot about, you know, a level that Tex and I never, never achieved. I was a state champ, Tex. I don't know if you remember that in high school. But uh, we all start. Um, no, whatever. <laughs> no, but we, he'll often talk about, you know, you talk about the, the talented, uh, but they're, they're, they're the highest performers, right? And, and what allows a lot of the, the world-class performers to continue to progress is their ability to overcome dysfunction right? Just like you're saying, and you're in a sport where um, the execution is judged, not the end result, right? You know, on a football field, when you strap up a helmet and some shoulder pads, it's about smashing the guy across from you. And at the end of the game, for the most part, 
You just want more, you want to be able to cross the line more times than the other guys, right? Mm-hmm. So um, it, you have a lot more leverage to work around movement dysfunction. And then, you know, he talks about that, you know, each time you do that, you cash a chip in though. And every, you know, guys run out of chips quicker than others. And for, for John, he talks about that one day where he's like, I just cashed in my last chip. That's it. That's it. I, I can't do it anymore. You know, and, and what specifically that was, you know, for him, it, it ended up being a knee deal. But, um, and then that's, that's what usually leads into a convo about, uh, Dr. Bueller, who's the witch doctor out in Salt Lake city, Utah, where he has very similar type of assessment deals where he, he has isolated basically every functional muscle in the body and can test whether it works. Right. And sure enough, the highest level performers who have done things that, normal folks could only dream of and they make it look effortless are the ones who have the least amount of functioning, you know, functioning motor musculature. Mm -hmm. So, uh, and, and for a strength coach, like who doesn't know any better and, and that's a lot of us, right? Like it, it becomes what Tex is talking about the curse of the gifted where it's like, you think what you're doing is making someone better, but it's really just this talented athlete's abilities to overcome even dysfunctional movement patterns and improve their, their end result performance. And now your coach who thinks he's got his shit together and in actuality is just his fucking all-star who made you look good. Right. And then it isn't two or three years down the line until you realize it only worked cause that guy was great. You know, if you ever realized it at all, but, um, I don't know, text I'm lost. I'm at a dead end. <laughs> <laughs> So well, you're, I, I mean, you're talking about a ta- talent, right? And, and mm-hmm. gifted athletes. And, and that's, how, that's exactly what it is. And, and you'll find that as they cash in chips, they start to lose, um, lose access to pieces of training. So it's like, okay, well, I can't do that anymore, but that's okay. I'll just do all this. And then like, oh, I can't do that anymore either, but that's fine. I'll just do this. Um, you know, I mean, my, my last year as a bobsledder, I hadn't been able to squat at all for about three years. And I was literally doing heavy sled pulls, power snatches from a high hang and glute bridges. Like that was the extent of the legwork that I could do. And like the, the thought of jumping just made me cringe. And yet I'm pushing a, you know, 350 pound bobsled down a hill and jumping in. Like, I mean, it's just insanity. The things that, that athletes are capable of putting together. Um, But those are the athletes that, start to have, you know, nagging chronic stuff going on that they just kind of deal with and, and whatever, but eventually it just catches up and you're like, okay, well, when did I break? Well, guess what? You broke like 15, 20 years ago. And so, you know, if we can address some of this stuff by creating this foundation that's with you all the time, I think that can make a big change. Right. And, uh, it's, it's a slippery slope, but we had a guy, you know, just along that, that note, we had a guy who hit me up on, on Instagram and he's like, yeah, man, I had to hang up the program going to do some rehab work. And I'm like, Hey, I'm proud of you, man. Like, Hey, I'm not going to try and pitch you on selling you back, get him back into Jack Street or field strong or something like that. And he's like, I'm just going to take six months, work on movement and then attack the numbers again. And even for like the enthusiast out there, like, listen, um, people take training 10 times more seriously with no competitive out outlet than some of the like world-class athletes we run into, you know? And, and, uh, but just, if you pull back that throttle and you decide to unfuck yourself, like it's a long road, you know, we, we try to 
have this breakthrough with folks at the seminar too is like, listen, are you going to quit training tomorrow? I know you're coaching, but like a lot of these people are in it because they love the training side of it too. Like, are you going to quit tomorrow? No, fuck. You're probably going to quit in 20 years. You know what I mean? So what is really six months to that 20 year life cycle? Like get your shit in, in, in a row. And so you don't feel like shit at the end of this thing. Right. So, but, but still it, uh, Ingrid mentioned earlier at the college level and, and rehab. So what is rehab for a college athlete, right? Then you leave the training, you leave the weight room, you leave the practice, not playing anymore. And you go to the athletic trainer and a lot of the perspective that exists right now at that, that level is all right, well, here's your dysfunction. Here's your injury. I fixed that, or excuse me, here's your injury. I fixed that. And I send you back to training, but there's still a dysfunction of movement. If the strength coach can work with the athletic trainer and then kind of coordinate. And that's, that's what I feel like Ingrid's program and presentation did a good thing of is we are correcting dysfunction. If we correct dysfunction, this will then take care of the injuries and the issues that, that exist. So, I mean, it's, it's up, down, and around, and people kind of have to change, uh, change their perception of moving. And like that, that um, kind of that, that baseline, the structural, I'm going to move up in my notes here, <clears throat> but the, uh, the structural integrity and movement variability that precedes the GPP training, uh, we talk about it at the seminar. We have that in our athleticism development block, and it's simple popular term amongst the power athlete nation is limiting factors. So it's not what you can do. It's what you can't do because that's, what's going to cost you a game. That's what's going to cost you training practice time and all of that good stuff. So it's, it's built off a lot of these component posture, position, position, stability, mobility, core strength, core strength, uh, core is a dirty word. We, we just default to trunk. Um, I know I hate using it if you and actually if you look at my my slide that that I have the core strength on um, I, I, I refer to it as the girdle and the girdle goes from pelvis to below the hips so, or sorry from pelvis from rib cage to below the hips so that's I mean so trunk's a great word too but I like to include hips in there too and, and trunk doesn't necessarily do that true and but you have a tree as the picture the background of the slide so we're we're with you there um, and then what I want to get into now is, is strength. So from our perspective, we call strength kind of the, the platform for which all of athleticism is built. And one of our programs, Bedrock, is specifically tailored to creating what we call the base level of strength. So that is biomechanical efficiency, neuromuscular efficiency, uh, tensile strength after thousands, you know, thousand reps, maybe hundreds of reps, uh, squatting, deadlifting, and all that good stuff to create that platform for us to then propel movements. And you call it here the bridge. So I thought that was kind of a, a platform bridge, a similar, similar perspective. And uh, in your details here, uh, you, got, you got some golden points, uh, isometric versus dynamic strength, uh, unilateral progression. So talk to us, uh, I guess, about your perspective, uh, perspective of strength and how it is grander than just a number. Well, it, it does. So it, it helps build on all of the other pieces and it helps connect some of the other pieces, but you can't do anything without strength. And so the way that I refer to it, the reason I call it a bridge is because it takes you from where you are now to where you want to go. And wherever that is, whatever, even if you want to be an endurance athlete, you need strength. You know, I mean, it, it doesn't matter what it is you're training for. Even if you just want to be 
the grandma that can pick up her grand grandkid, right? Like it's strength is, is everything to the human body. And, you know, your level of strength is certainly um, specific to who you are and what you want to do. Um, but, but it, it enhances everything else that you build, you know, mobility is reliant on strength. Power is reliant on strength. Speed is reliant on strength. So anything performance-based is going to be reliant on strength. Um, and strength is so much more. It's not just like, oh, I squat so much or I clean so much or whatever. Um, it's the ability to take your body into positions and withstand resistance in that position and produce force and transfer force uh, either to an object or to another part of your body or just to the ground or whatever. Um, but it's, it's positional. Um, you know, it's, it's being able to maintain those alignments in your, your body while under, under load and under speed and, um, anything like that. Um, and so it's, it's, and unilateral certainly comes later. You know, I see a lot of deficiencies unilaterally, uh, especially in athletes. Um, you know, and then even if they're good unilaterally changing direction and being able to apply that force in different manners and, and different positions and different movements is you know, sometimes just falls apart. Um, so I, I kind of try to encompass all of that stuff with, with the idea of what strength is. Yeah. That, that multi-directional force reduction is crucial. And mm -hmm. a lot of the athletes that we get, uh, and coaches at our seminar, this is just a, a whole new world and experience for them. When we get into the change of direction, when we get into the lunges and we kind of expose their weaknesses within the frontal and the transverse plane. So it, and I mean, Luke can attest to this, just trying to get a sagittal plane athletes to move through and just do our change of direction drills. It's, it's almost comical, mm -hmm. uh, but we focus on patterning, right? And then put them in the optimal position and then go practice that pattern and take it to their athletes. Yeah. And have them understand how to, how to use the ground. I mean, the, the feet are so overlooked. Um, you know, we, we think of, oh, it's high knees and it's this and it's that. Well, the only place that you can apply force in order to elicit a change of direction or a move of a barbell or move of yourself is in the ground. So why aren't we talking about what happens between your foot and the ground? The only way that you can apply that force is through your foot. And so you better know how to use your feet. You better have strong freaking feet. Um, so, you know, I mean, if you don't, you can have, you can have built this race car of a body and then have flat tires, you know, I mean, what you can't, you still can't go anywhere. Um, so anyway, not to, <laughs> to get, go on a tangent, but, but I, I think that when it comes to change of direction, um, you know, that's certainly a, a piece of strength, but I think for me, strength then takes those first three is that posture awareness, stability, mobility, core strength, and stability strength ties those in to, you know, human performance and human movement. Well, let's go down that. I mean, let's talk about where the rubber meets the road, right? Because that was something that, you know, in our, in Tex and I, my pre, pre-talk or brief, whatever. Um, that was one of the, the subjects that, that resonated with Tex because he's got some flat tires and, you know, I've got some nice Dunlaps just ready to roll. What, Tex? Wrong. I'm just 44 extra wide. Your Dunlap is around your waist, buddy. But, uh, <laughs> was uh, that a zing, Tex? All right. Uh, Power Athlete Nation, let it be known, Tex just zinged me. That's one Tex. <laughs> what episode are we on? 190? Yeah, so we're, we're almost at 89 to 1. Uh, <laughs> don't call it a comeback. Uh, so, 
And this was one of our conversations just off to the side. It was about feet because a broken ankle cost me an entire season and I had to stand on the sideline in crutches and it was motivating, devastating all at the same time. Uh, so talk about your journey to understand the importance of the feet and really how it is that um, that dorsiflexion is everything when it comes to force production, reduction, transfer, and how it needs to stop being neglected no matter what you're training for. Uh, well, so my, again, my, my history is what led me to kind of really dive into this head first. Um, you know, I, like I said, I spent the last nine years of my gymnastics career on crutches and, and I had, uh, I had surgery on both ankles. I had one ankle completely reconstructed and I then proceeded later on to completely blow out that ankle again, tear out the anchor, um, found out. So I have no ATFL ligament on either side. I have a longitudinal split in both brevis tendons. Um, so basically I have no stability in my structural stability in my ankles. Um, but I was still trying to push bobsled and you know, the amount of force you have to apply. And, and when you're pushing a sled, you're in a deep drive angle. Right. So I have to, I had the mobility in the ankle, but I had no strength in there. So, I mean, I was applying this, these huge amounts of force that I generated through my hips and my legs and then just losing it with every step. Uh, and so, you know, watching in slow motion, that heel drop. So you would land on the ice and that heel would just drop and you're like, why does that happen? And so I'd be taping my ankles and like doing all these crazy things to try to keep my ankles together. Um, but when I started understanding how to, even despite my structural deficiency, I could actually build strength and stability in my ankle, which I had assumed was gone because of, you know, I didn't have anything left. But, um, but now, I mean, I, I've, I've built stiffness in, in the ankle and I, I can do so many things. Um, you know, I wouldn't be stupid enough to go try to cut on a soccer field because I don't have a ligament, but, um, but I can sprint and I can, I can jump and I can do all kinds of things without, without issue. But, um, but for me, it, it just comes down to understanding that you have control of the strength of your arch. You have control of how to use your foot into the ground and, and understanding how to do that. And then understanding, you know, most field sports, for example, or I should say all field sports and then certainly track and field, you, who plays on a flat foot? Nobody. You're never on your heel. But where does everybody do all their balance work? on a flat foot and they're like, oh, let's make it harder. I'm gonna put you on an unstable surface. All right, but I'm playing on a stable surface with an unstable foot. So how do I create a more stable foot? Um, and so it's, it's understanding how to attack some of those things. But, but it, was, it was, again, from my own history and then seeing the change that could happen when you actually addressed the, what you needed to address. Um, so it's, it's, been, it's been very interesting. And I think a big part of it is changing the perception because Every CrossFitter I've ever met has flat feet. Mm. Every college offensive lineman I ever met has flat feet, mm. except for John. So it's about they are just accepting that, but we need to get them out of it. Um, so what I want to do for the audience is kind of take them through just one drill I thought was pretty cool uh, in which we were practicing balancing on uh, the ball of your foot. And then, Ingrid, if you don't mind taking us through – I think you know what I'm talking about, where our heels, uh, heels are connected, ankles are connected. And then talk us through faults and uh, what they mean. So um, just kind of going into, I guess, a yoga approach in which you were 
verbally guiding us through with our eyes closed if you're driving. Wait till you get home. And no, no, you'll be fine. <laughs> put, your, put your hazards on. <laughs> and then uh, kind of talk us through the faults and, and what we see and what should expect and what do they mean. Yep. Well, the first thing that I, I really like to start with is uh, what I call MJ leans. Uh, and so for those of you that are old enough to have seen the Michael Jackson video where he leans forward like and he should fall over and he doesn't. Um, that. Was it? Mo no, that's James Bond. Sorry. Go ahead. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but the idea is you're trying to lean your entire body forward and not fall over. Um, and the reason that I do that is because I think if you try to cue the feet first, nobody knows how to use their feet. And so you try to tell somebody to do something with their toes and they're like, what? You want me to what? That doesn't make sense. Um, so the first thing that you would do is just standing in a, you know, feet apart just enough that you're comfortable, kind of a neutral stance with your feet. Um, keeping your body completely straight, you want to take your whole body and lean forward. So pelvis, rib cage, shoulders, everything lean forward. And the first thing that you'll feel is that your toes will naturally start to grab the ground. And you're not going to curl the toes. You won't feel that. You'll just feel them sort of push into the floor. And that is the, the first activation of your foot that you'll start to feel. And when you do that, you'll also notice that when you lean, you don't lean to the outside of your foot. Your foot stays pretty balanced and you're gonna use your big toe. Your big toe is your tie to your glute. Most people I'm gonna say are gonna to wanna to use their glute in everything they do. So uh, when we do balance work, we wanna make sure that we're staying connected through that big toe on the ground. So that's number one, is just feeling that MJ lean. We can do a lot of stuff from that position, but just learning to feel the ground with your feet is the first thing. Um, second thing we're going to do now is you're going to use our right foot as our working leg. You're going to stand on your right foot and take a step forward with your left foot, just as if you're stepping onto your left foot like you're walking. And you're just going to put enough weight onto your left foot so that your right heel comes off the ground. Once your heel is off the ground, keep that foot in that exact position. Don't let it change and you're gonna walk your left foot back until it's equal with your right foot. So your right foot is on the ball of your foot, your left foot is next to your right foot, you're gonna transfer your weight to your right foot until your left foot can come off the ground. So you're gonna be standing on one leg, standing only on the right leg, while standing on the ball of your foot. What I don't want is for you to push into the ground and make it a calf raise, because when we're running, when we're sprinting, when we're jumping, you want a more relaxed ankle. It's gonna, there's gonna be stiffness to it, but I want, the, I want that to be reflexive. I don't want you to be pushing, because that's plantar flexion. I don't want you to be pushing through your toes. So allow the heel to sort of settle, but keep the heel off the ground. The knee and the hip can both be bent. So you're in a little mini squat. Once you pick that left foot up, you're gonna try to balance in that position. Most people are gonna last maybe five or 10 seconds. You should be able to hold that position for 60 seconds. Uh, and even most of my high-performing athletes, once they pick that left foot off the ground, forget it. They're, they're, uh, they're falling over. Um, but you can build this very, very quickly. If you did this every single day, if you make five seconds now, 10, 15, 20 seconds by the end of the week shouldn't be any big deal. Um, and so that's what's really amazing is it's, it, it's not a strength thing. It's a connection to the control of that joint and understanding how to use it. 
Um, so sometimes we just kind of need to wake that up. So there's a neurological connection. Um, so we want to make sure that we can balance on the ball of the foot. Now, what will also happen is when we're on the ball of your foot, your body will naturally roll that ankle out and you'll feel the weight in your foot shift to your pinky toe. Remember that big toe is what is going to connect to your glute. We don't want that. We don't want to lose that connection. So we're going to keep the weight on the big toe. Now, the one way that we can work on that specifically to help you understand how to move your foot in that manner is if you start with your feet completely together. So now we're, we're off of our single foot. We're back on a flat foot. Two feet together, you're going to put heels and toes together completely. So you're standing up, heels and toes together. You are going to try to touch your inside ankle bone to each other. That's you are, you're trying to roll the ankles towards one another. We tend to sit on the outsides of our feet, especially when we start to go into a calf raise. Squeezing that inside edge of your ankle towards each other, you're going to raise up into a calf raise, bringing both heels as high as possible. Once you're up at the top, really, really take note of those ankles. As you came up, did the ankles come apart? We don't want to see any separation between the ankles. You don't want to feel the weight on the pinky toe more than on the big toe. If anything, push a little bit more through that big toe and keep the weight there. So roll that, that foot back to that big toe. The next step from there, if you can balance there, is to push a little harder through one foot, pick up the other foot. As you pick up that foot, I do not want to see that heel drop. So if you came up as high as you could on two feet, and you pick up the right foot, your left foot should not have changed position. And what I see quite often is that heel will drop slightly. So we want to maintain that position. So if you, if you can't maintain as high, just maintain as high as you can and eventually work on being able to maintain higher. And then you could do a very slow eccentric, so a slow lower to put that heel back on the ground. So I go up on two, balance on one, down on one. Does that help? <laughs> Hopefully awesome. that's helpful. Yeah, and um, that staggered stance, I was actually thinking about it because uh, we had a seminar this past weekend where we introduced uh, a staggered stance arm swing. And one of the biggest issues and challenges I've had in teaching that movement is uh, having people find the balance between the forwards and the back leg. And then this time around, I applied uh, the first thing I did. I guess I didn't call it an MJ lean, I uh, just recalled that lean forward so they could feel. Uh, that pressure and then kind of went through the same approach just to get them into a, a staggered stance and find a balance. Um, so, uh, but a couple things I want to ask, like, what do they mean? Uh, the first is like the, the rollout of the ankle. So when we have our uh, just feet, feet in line with one another and that, that external rotation, is that a, a compensation pattern to quads or, uh, trying to get back into something. What does it mean when we have that external rotation, the ankles roll out? You know, that's a very good question. Um, I don't have a, a total answer for you on that one. Um, I know that I see it really often. I think the, what I attribute it to is just the inability to control the ankle when we're not in a flat foot. And so I, I don't, I mean, I do try to understand things as, as well as I can, but, um, but for me, it doesn't 
learning the details of maybe what it means is less important than understanding how to correct it. And if I know that if I can get them back on their big toe, then, you know, we're going to be doing some good stuff. Um, so I, I, I don't know. I actually do not know the answer to that. Yeah. To, to be an effective coach, you don't have to understand how you just have to understand what, what to do. Uh, I, I'm just always asking how, 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 um, and then, uh, maybe, maybe we go into kind of, uh, the, the term compensation pattern. So, uh, this is uh, a, a term that you used, and it's something that we reference not as eloquently as compensation pattern, but defaulting to the quads or um, defaulting to external rotation. Um, when we, we do some ladder, uh, frontal plane work, we just see people externally rotate the hips to drive their knees out because that's the only thing that their body knows how to do under stress. Uh, so uh, maybe kind of get into the concept of compensation patterns. Um, it, from your experience? Yeah. Uh, well, so I hate to make compensation be a negative word because that is part of what movement variability is. You know, movement variability is the ability to change and compensate and, you know, adjust to your environment in order to produce the correct result. Now, when we start losing the number of options we have, then our resorted or, or the position or the movement we resort to, if if that is in a if that's a compensatory and not an efficient matter, and I don't have any other options, that's when it becomes a problem. Um, so I don't mind compensation in general. I want to be able to do things lots of different ways. So when I, when I want to refer to it in a negative sense, it's when I've run out of options and my only option is this compensatory movement. Um, so I just want to be clear on that too, that like I'm not saying compensation is bad because that's what makes you a great athlete. Um, but anyway, so that, that's just kind of a, a side note. But um, there are so many patterns that, that I see, and that's, that's exactly one, is, is that rotation of the knees. I mean, squatting is one of, obviously, the most commonly done exercises, and everybody knows we wanna keep our knees open, right, and not let them dive in, but you're right, you see so much external rotation. But one of the reasons that that happens is because nobody has been taught how to open the pelvis, and the pelvis should actually open as we squat. So, I mean, that, that's a whole nother thing that, that I could get into, but, um, it's understanding what drives the pattern. So, you know, I might see that they're externally rotating their knees, but, or, well, from the hip, so you see it in the knee. Um, but if I don't know how to fix that pattern and I don't know a different option to give them and I don't know how to create a better movement without just saying don't turn your hips or don't turn your knees out, then, like, then I'm not, I don't have that enough to help them with. Um, so I think that's, that's something to be aware of too, is like understand what's driving that pattern so that we can actually hit the source of what's happening. Um, so for me, that's what compensation is all about. Like, I mean, people do, you know, uh, ankle band sidewalks all the time, right? Side steps with an ankle band around your ankles or around your knees or whatever. But if you start asking the people doing them what they feel more often than not, they're feeling upper quad and not glute. And so you can't just like, and, and you might try turning their feet, you might try doing this and whatever, but if, they're, if their feeding pattern is to resort to upper quad and hip flexor to keep their hip or to keep their pelvis stable and they're on single leg, 
there is no way on earth you're going to be able to cue them into using their glute. Um, and so it's, it's patterns like that, that you just want to, you need to be aware of. So like that, that for me is when the co compensatory issue becomes a problem, um, is, is because then every single thing that they do is going to feed that. But what drives this pattern? What, you know, yes, I have this symptom in this area of my body, whether it's a symptom of, uh, alignment issue or a symptom of pain or a symptom of, you know, decrease in performance. Um, but what drives that? And that's, that's where that compensation stems from. And is it, is it bad or good? You know, they may be squatting in a poor position, but, or what we consider a poor position, but if they have the option of squatting in another position and they feel better and they feel okay, and it's not a, it's not an unsafe position, then I may not, I may not have a problem with that. I may not. So I don't know, <laughs> kind of going on and on, but, um, I don't know what you want to say. No, that, I mean, you, you're, you're on point there, right? It, it's just, it's, it's, it's how people find themselves in the dysfunction, right? Mm -hmm. They just get lost in it. So, right. um, text, do we have anything else we want to jam on? Uh, yeah, I mean, a couple things, if we got a few more minutes, um, coordination. So this is the first I've been to I, I, a lot of conferences. This is the first conference presentation that I've experienced that acknowledges coordination. So I went on a freaking year long rabbit hole of coordination. So I kind of am sentimental to it. Uh, but uh, I want to kind of get into that. I know uh, coordination is part of compensation. Coordination is, is part of patterning. Coordination is uh, really uh, what separates almost the elite from the D3 All-Stars. So uh, it is part of your fundamental uh, kind of block before, before that pyramid is built. So talk, talk to us about kind of why you thought to include this in to your, your base here. Well, I think, you know, as I've worked with other athletes and as I've worked on some of my own issues, you know, I, I've understood the importance of, of connection in the body and the importance of how to direct that and how to use that and how to find that. Um, you know, so, so many athletes are completely disconnected from head down um, and they can make movements look right and they can, you know, right, but not as powerful or maybe not as efficient or not as, as well as they could. Um, but it's, it's, I mean, I, I refer to it as a control tower, you know, like at, a, at an airport, because it's, it's one, it's the ability to control multiple moving parts in a coordinated fashion, right? So that each thing is doing what it should be doing at the right time in the right place and producing the right result. Um, but it's, it's landings and it's takeoffs and it's, it's the cognitive understanding of what needs to happen to make those more efficient. And, and it's the proficiency and the practice and the repetition of all of those things that makes that happen. So this kind of, again, goes into some of the patterning and the, the high volume work and, and the repetition of everything, but it's, you know, motor control is everything. And, and to me, again, this, so, you know, those first three things are sort of individual aspects of training, you know, strength creates the bridge to take those, those pieces and tie it into your performance. And then the control tower is what directs all of those actions. And so your, the coordination is 
the ability to control your range of motion, the ability to control your posture and alignment, the ability to use your strength um, and use it efficiently and use it productively. Um, so I, that's, I think it's, it's that kind of spectrum of, of learning. You have to have some of those things in place, but you teach them how to feel, how to become connected to their body. I mean, one of the things I talk about as, you know, as an athlete, I don't know an athlete that doesn't stick earphones in and, you know, tune out and kind of do their thing when they're warming up, when they're training, when they're whatever. Um, and I was the opposite. I, I actually wanted silence. I didn't really want a whole lot. Um, cause in the way that I described it is I didn't want to tune out. I wanted to tune in. I wanted to, to listen to myself. I wanted to feel my body. I wanted to know what I was doing. Um, and, and so that's kind of the way I describe this is I want athletes to tune in and understand what's happening in their body in a way that, that they, they can then take control of what's happening and what they're doing. Yeah. A lot of, um, training just that I've seen is, it's maximal effort. It's always trying to increase, right, your, your top end. But then if we look at sports, say I have a 40-inch vertical. Don't laugh, Luke. If I have a 40-inch vertical, right, I don't always have to jump 40 inches to get the ball. I have to jump to the exact degree away from the, intender, uh, the defender. I have to do all these calculations instantaneously to be in a position to catch the pass and get my toes in bounds. So, and, and Tex, what, you know, uh, uh, I'm going to dog a pile on top of that, too, at minimal effort. Yes. You know what I mean? Seamlessly. So you, it, it's, it's mortgaging your effort so that, you know, the best athletes are the ones who can make it look easy. And the less effort you use, the less you tire out, right? Training should be maximal effort for the most part, unless we get into kind of that open loop environment where you might not have to display it. But the goal is to raise the bar so high that you can operate 10 times better than everyone else when you're putting out 40% of your best, right? So that's where people, you know, I think people, listen, fitness is great, but certain avenues to get fit as fuck, which do work, reward maximal effort 100% of the time, whereas the athlete, the most achieve, accomplished athletes achieve greatness at, you know, some sort of a, a fraction of that, right? Well, I think what they, they find, if they're training smart, they find their minimum effective dose. Totally. And, That's a much and, more elegant way to put it, Ingrid. I should just fucking, I should start talking to you instead of text. Text and I battle on mince <laughs> words. You know, like you're smart, I'm not. You're good looking, I'm ugly, that type of thing. Like I should just be in touch with you next time. <laughs> the minimum effective dose is perfect. Yeah, but it's true. I mean, you know, the and, and even in just in a, a general sense of training, you know, you as a blanket program, all right, we're squatting three days a week. Well, what if in training I can maintain or increase by squatting once every 10 days? Then why am I going to squat three days a week and tire out my body and tire out and, and tax my system if I don't have to? If I, can, if I can make the improvements I need to make and maintain a level I need to maintain, and especially in, in season, you know, I mean, it's, it's, and it's very individual, right? You kind of right. have to, there's trial and error to figure out what that is. But, um, but when you have, better control, you're exactly right. When you have better control and, and better coordination and better understanding of how to use that, then you can just apply the amount necessary for the, the task at hand as opposed to just like jumping in and throwing everything at you. Right. Yeah. And that's, I mean, Tex, that's what we were talking with Noah about yesterday at the Onnit Academy, right? Is, you know, the, the idea of incorporating something like um, velocity-based training, 
if your goal is max, you know, power output is, you know, you utilize those metrics and that technology to get the minimum effective dose, because if you go over, it could start working against you. Right. And that's the concept behind intensity runs and yada, yada, yada. Right. And coordination. Boom. There you go. <laughs> uh, one final one. I think it'd be cool because uh, a lot of the conversations that Luke and I have been having lately are on motivation. Oh, so yeah. yeah. This is um, motivation discipline was one of uh, one of your topics of discussion at the presentation. And your uh, image that you have with the slide is a horse with some blinders on. Um, mm -hmm. So what I want to kind of discuss uh, in particular is intrinsic motivation and in your journey have you met people that have learned to push themselves or that were motivated externally that switched to intrinsic motivation or have all the successful people that you've ever met kind of solely been that intrinsically motivated type I think most of the, the high performers that I've been around have been intrinsically motivated um, you know, and I'm, I'm, I would bet there's people out there that have, have switched, uh, and found better success, but, um, but it's, it's, but it's finding what drives you. Right. And, and if, if something extrinsic is enough of a, of a thing, I do think, um, athletes as they progress in their careers, um, and as they experience certain things, uh, even if they're intrinsically motivated to train and to compete and to go for things, they may still be driven by, okay, it's the Olympics, it's this, it's this, it's this, it's this. But so they're, they still have that intrinsic drive, but there's, there's something interesting that happens when they finally get to the point where they can, they can actually just leave it all out on the field and say, okay, yes, it's the Olympics, but there's a whole process involved. There's things out of my control. If I can, if I can take care of everything under my control, and let the extrinsic go, right? Then magic things happen, um, and and not that they always then make the team or whatever, but but it changes you as a person uh, and your understanding of success and your your definition of success changes. Um, I mean, that's certainly something that that I went through as an athlete, um, and I think everything is a little bit different after that. So I, I've seen that change in quite a few athletes. Um, and, and I've seen it in quite a few athletes that all of a sudden had better success than they had ever had before, um, where things just kind of come together because they're not trying to fight things. They're not trying to push for things they can't control. And they're just sort of, they're doing everything under their power to be ready for that moment. Um, and then they are. Uh, so it's, it's interesting. So, I, I mean, I, I know that's a little bit, a little bit different than what you're asking, but, but I think even someone who's intrinsically motivated does have those pieces of those, you know, those very specific goals that define what everything means. And, and if that can change, I think that changes a lot. Yeah. So it's cool that this is kind of part of your essential athlete development. Have you found a way to integrate motivation into your development of your athletes? Well, I, I so my, my, um, topic is actually mental discipline as opposed to motivation and motivation is part of that but it's the the ability to to be completely immersed in the task at hand and and some of this if you're in competition would be the zone right the ability to call upon your mental discipline to get yourself completely in the moment 
at that time and nothing else is going on. And that, that comes with practice. I mean, certainly there are athletes that can just do that in competition and it's natural, but you can train it and you can train athletes to be able to be there. And the only way that you do that is by then doing it in every single thing you do, right? You train with purpose. There's, there's a purpose, there's intention with everything that you do. And so and that's why I, I call it, you know, blinders, because if you're, you know, if you have this, this ability to sort of shut off everything else that's going on. I don't care if you just had an argument with your boyfriend. I don't care if you just failed a test. I don't care what happened. If you're going to come in here and train, everything else is off. Nothing else matters. You're in here and completely immersed in what you're doing. You're training with intention. You move with purpose. You have concentration. You can manage all of that, those distractions. And then when it's the, and then you, you apply that stuff when it's, whether it's a, you know, a local meet or it's the Olympic Games. If you've practiced that skill the entire time that you've been training, then when it comes to the Olympics, it doesn't matter that it's the Olympics. It's the, it's just another it's just another meet, right? And you you don't you can deal with those pressures by having built up that skill to to do that and to be in that moment. That's great, and and that's kind of aligned with some of the stuff we're we're looking into now. Uh, like, you know, even the intrinsic, intrinsically motivated, there is a, there's a blip. There's a blip once there is a worthy ex external motivator, you know what I mean? Where it, things kind of peak and spike and focus is, is laser sharp, right? So, well, Ingrid, this has been an awesome chat. I mean, it's, it, I'm glad that you took the time to come on with us and I, I, I foresee us crossing paths paths in the future. I really do because it's, you, we're, we're assembling like a, a league of extraordinary coaches, right? And you fall right in line with, with a lot of the stuff that, that we, we preach on a daily basis, whether it's to each other, like it's funny, text will be, text and I'll be arguing with each other about nothing because we're saying the same thing, like, or whether it's over email. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but, um, thank you so much. If folks want to get more and get after you, where do they find you? I mean, we know we have ingridmarkham.com, but I mean, are you, are you pretty, are you loud and on social media? Where do you want people to go? I'm getting louder for sure. Um, I, I'm, I've been putting more stuff out on Instagram. Uh, you see me, you'll see me once a week on the CrossFit weightlifting uh, Instagram and Facebook as well because I'm trying to provide some content there. Um, but, more, but more and more, I'm, I'm super easy to find. I mean, the, my Instagram is uh, the Iron Valkyrie. So, uh, but if you look up, if you look me up by my name, you'll find me. Okay. Um, but, but Valkyrie is is a you know comes from my my Norwegian my my Norwegian roots and Viking roots so um, I gotta gotta yeah <laughs> some of that stuff because that's you know embrace uh, it part of my history yeah um, but yeah the but but if you if you just look me up by my name I'm on Instagram I'm on Facebook I'm getting a little bit more stuff on YouTube and I'm I'm certainly uh, on my website and there's a way to contact me there. And uh, and I know that uh, you and I you and I are actually neighbors, right? We were we grew up like uh, just a few miles apart. And I know you said you had something coming up. So anybody in Chicagoland area, the Midwest, the Paris of America, um, you have a little a workshop coming up, right? Yeah, I do. So I'll I'll be. I mean, all of these things that we talked about today, uh, I'm will be in the workshop. Um, I'm just teaching foundations of human movement and how to apply it whether you're an athlete or, so you don't have to be a coach. Like if you just want to come as an athlete, you can learn. Uh, you can also learn as a coach um, or even just a, a fitness enthusiast. I mean, it kind of applies across the board because it's just right. 
healing movement. Um, but yeah, uh, within the next three months, uh, I'll and I'll be announcing the date probably in the next couple of weeks. So if you take a look at my website or Facebook, okay. any anywhere that I am, you'll you'll see the the announcement. So you heard of people jump on it. Follow Ingrid on Instagram, get on the Facebook, get on her webpage and get a, be a part of this stuff. And, uh, and if rewind back, what was it text? Maybe 25 minutes or so and get your Michael Jackson lean on. Okay. And let's see how you fare with that, uh, with that foot and ankle exercise. So thank you everybody for listening. Thank you, Ingrid, for taking your time. Text go to hell. Um, <laughs> just or San Diego. I'll do that. Or San Diego, right? Uh, <laughs> safe travels text, but I'm sure we'll be, we're, we'll talk to each other 50 times before you leave. Poker night Wednesday. Poker night Wednesday. Well, isn't San Diego this weekend? It's tomorrow morning, yeah. But yeah. I'm just looking forward. What's going to get me through is uh, poker night Wednesday. Oh, okay. You're telling me that a, 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 a romantic evening with dusty crackers <laughs> on Sunday night over bottles of red wine and saltine crackers, uh, that's not going to get you going? I got a lot of things to look forward to. <laughs> <laughs> All right, guys. Listen, Power Athlete Nation, thanks for listening. And I guess we don't do this enough, Text. Hey, do you like this podcast? Go to iTunes, give it five stars, or go to hell, right? That's our public service announcement for, uh, for the show. Or if you don't like it, tell us what we could fix because we have world-class guests on this show. This is the premier podcast in strength conditioning. And if you have a Google home device, Luke, what should they try? I don't know if it's, I don't know if it's on yet. Should we try it now? Cause it's probably still like uh, professor booty and Denny K well, in, in two weeks when this comes out, try it. Ask what, okay, Google, what is power athlete radio? No, it's not up yet. Well, Anyways, ask Alexa, ask your Google, what is Power Athlete Radio? And you're going to hear about it. It's, yeah, by the time this airs, it should be up and running. All right, okay, enough of that shit. Thank you, Ingrid. You can go about your life and, uh, <laughs> and stop listening to us two meatheads just talk about nothing. So It's not, not a bad thing. I, I enjoyed myself, <laughs> so thank you. <laughs> thank, oh, you. thank you very much. All right, guys, talk to you later. Bye. Bye. Now it's time for you to empower your performance. You heard her folks. Find Ingrid Markham on social media by simply doing a search of her name. That will lead you to her personal site and to her Instagram page with the handle at the Iron Valkyrie. Ingrid can also be found assisting with CrossFit weightlifting seminars when she's not leading talks of her own. Until next time, bye!